Happy Friday, everyone. How's everybody doing? <clears throat> Did we survive yet another grueling loss to the Marlins yesterday? Hey, this is where we were supposed to gain ground. We only went 5-4 and four against the Nats and Marlins. And right now, things are not looking good. Even if you're working on a dock and rooting for the Mets, we're just living on a prayer. We're not even halfway there. But... Nonetheless, we're still living on a prayer. We find ourselves in the uncomfortable position with basically three weeks to go, trailing both Atlanta and Philly with a very, very rough part of the schedule coming up. Can it be done? Well, the odds makers and myself say no. But you know what? Until you're eliminated, you still got a shot. So we're going to pick up our chin, we're going to look forward to the Yankees series, and talk about a team that's falling on harder times than us, it's the Yankees. Looked like they were going to go all the way with that winning streak, and now they're one of the worst teams in baseball. So the battle of New York will be a survival of the fittest as both teams are reeling, the Yankees more so than us. So it's going to be interesting, someone's going to have to win. Hey, a sweep's not out of the possible. You know why? Because maybe we are halfway there. Maybe we are living on a prayer. And if that's the case, maybe 2021 is the year for us. But you know what? After that brutal loss to the Marlins yesterday, I don't know. The Marlins pounced on us. Let's face it, it was a lifeless bunch. Using Chaz Chisholm's Jr., go-ahead homer against Jaris Familia in the eighth inning to beat the Mets 3-2. And one of my full favorite ballpark names of all time, said no one ever, Lone Depot Park. And the Mets lost two or three games in the series and finished 4-4 four four on the trip. Oops, I said 5-4. I beg your birdie. Bob Murphy, you're big birdie. And they had hoped that would spring them toward the NL East lead. And unfortunately, folks, we are now five games behind the Braves. And the season is dwindling. It just doesn't seem like the Mets are focused. They don't have that feeling they need. They don't have that killer instinct. It just doesn't seem like the chemistry's there. Uh, they just need to play ball and be themselves. I'm telling you, it's not me drinking the Met Kool-Aid. This team should be better than what it is right now. But Billy entered in the eighth and recorded two outs before Chisholm hammered a 98-mile-per-hour sinker into the upper deck and right to give the Marlins their margin of victory. Now our Metsies led 2-0 in 6 but couldn't add on. And they were finishing 0-7. The night 0-7 runners in scoring position. Where have we heard that before? It's almost like it's wash, rinse, repeat when it comes to the Mets and runners in scoring position. Now Pete Alonso triple leading off the 8th. Believe it or not, that went wasted as the Mets failed to bring in the run. Baez and J.D. Davis both grounded out to the left side. They're the place you don't want to hit the ball. And after Michael Conforto received an intentional walk, 
Richard Boyer retired, pinch hitter Jeff McNeil. Who would ever think that a team would pitch around Conforto to get to McNeil, who has always been one of our best bats until this year? Oh, how many times is this going to happen this year? Now, the Marlins had tied it 2-2 in the seventh on their third and field hit of the inning. Lewis Brinson hit a dribbler toward third that Brad Hand fielded and bounced past Alfonso. And now Brad Hand came in the game. And, uh, well, let's say the Marlins tied to score 2-2 in the seventh, as I was saying before. Brinson hit a dribbler toward third that Brad Hand fielded and bounced past Alonzo allowing Izan Diaz to score from second. Conforto retrieved the ball and threw out Brinson at second to end the inning. Now Hand, after replacing Stroman, allowed an infield single to Diaz, but the Mets then caught a break. Hand loaded a pitch to backstop, but baseball's a funny game. You don't know which way the ball's going to bounce, but the ball carried in James McNann, who nailed pinch runner Alex Jackson, attempting to steal third. Oh, crazy play indeed. Now, Stroman lasted six and a third innings and surrendered one run over four hits. One run on four hits with seven strikeouts. He departed after getting fooled on Sandy Leone's squib that became an infield single in the seventh. Now, the Mets have been in every single game, it seems like. And what's frustrating is they're right there at the end. And a couple of things just don't go their way. And it feels like you have a loss. Well, I hate to tell you this, but that's what separates the winners from the losers. You have to take advantage of every situation. And you can't get into that situation where every situation can seem like it can get you into a loss. Now, the Marlins got close in the six on Chisholm's RBI field of choice that sliced the Mets lead to 2-1. to one. Stroman punked Eddie Alvarez to begin the inning and surrendered a single to Miguel Rojas that put runners on the corners. Chisholm got as far as third base following his run-scoring ground out, but Stroman struck out Jesus Sanchez to end the threat. A two-out rally against the Marlins lefty Jesus Lazardo gave the Mets a 1-0 lead in the first. Baez cleared the fence in right center on one bounce for a double before Lazardo walked Davis and Conforto in succession. On the latter, Lazardo unleashed his second wild pitch the inning, allowing Baez to score. Now Baez homered in the second inning, extending the Mets' lead to 2-0. The blast was Baez's seventh and 28 games since the Mets. He joined the Mets. It was his fifth homer since returning from the injury list on August 22nd. And you know, I think we got a good sample size as far as Baez concerned. We kind of know what he can and can't do. Now, we only had one guy that moved our offense basically tonight, and that was Javi. Uh, his base running abilities and the homer he hit shows what kind of player he can be. Well, now it begins. We got the Marlins and Nationals out of the way, and this is the series everybody looks forward to every year. It's the Yankees and the Mets at City Field. Now, how do things stack up? This is the big Subway Series. We thought we'd both be playoff bound, but you know what? It's not that way anymore. The series is almost always intense. It's always like a playoff atmosphere when the Mets and Yankees share a diamond. Uh, and this latest version, because we're playing in September, may be a bit heightened considering the significance of the three games for both teams. The Yankees are narrowly hanging on to AO wildcard spot and have hit the skids after their 13-game winning streak. The Mets are on the outskirts of their playoff race, trailing the NLE's leading Braves by four games entering Thursday. Well, now it's five. Both teams need a big weekend to settle, sell themselves up, set themselves up for a big finish. 
And the festives will be emotional Saturday. Uh, and I think the whole series is going to be emotional, both on the field and off the field. Uh, well, let's see what happens. Now, offensively, these were supposed to be two of the better offensive teams in the sport. Lineups flooded with power and depth. Instead, let's face it, they've both disappointed. They are both ranked in the bottom third of the MLB in runs scored and batting average. The Yankees are 20th in runs and 24th in batting average. And the Mets are 28th and 20th, respectively. They are both offensively challenged, significantly let down by a high-priced infielder. After returning to Bronx on a six-year, $90 million deal, D.J. LeMahieu hasn't lived up to expectations with a 266, 346, 362 slash line and a meager 708 OPS. Francisco Lindor, meanwhile, has struggled in his first year as a Met, managing just a 226 batting average and 698 OPS after receiving his blockbuster 341, 341 million 10-year contract. Now, the absence of Brandon Nimmo, the Mets' on-base machine, one of their top hitters, is a significant loss. So, but no matter what, I think you have to give the edge to the Yankees as far as hitting. So, that's how bad the Mets have fallen. Now, how about the power department? You know, the three-run homer usually wins ball games. I think the Yankees have a major edge in this category. Judge and Stan have combined to hit 56 homers, while Gary Sanchez, Rizzo, Boyd, and Joey Gallo are all dangerous long ball threats. As a team, they have hit 176 homers, 23 more than the Mets, who have been carried by Pete Alonso's 32 home runs. Now, unlike the Yankees who help each other out with the long ball, the Polar Bear hasn't received much help in the power department. Believe it or not, utility man Jonathan Villar is second on the team with 18 and is followed by part-time outfielder Kevin Pillar with 14. And Fordo, Smith, and McNeil have each combined for just 29 homers. And that, my friends, is the Mets season in a nutshell. The three big power bats that were supposed to be helping out just ain't, and I think the Yankees have the advantage in that category. Now, how about on the base pads? Neither team really runs that often. Who does these days? Although well, the Mets have turned up their aggressiveness in recent weeks, trying to push the envelope to jumpstart a dormant offense, and that has a lot to do with Javi Baez. He just likes to kickstart and take that chance. Now, that approach hasn't worked well for the Yankees, who have made just 46 outs on the bases, tied for the third most. They've made 46 outs on the bases, tied for the third most in baseball. By comparison, the Mets have only made 33 outs on the bases, trailing only the Cardinals, who have 30. So I give the Mets the edge on as far as running the base paths. Now, how about in the field? In the infield, the Yankees improved their infield defense with the trade deadline acquisition of Rizzo. They were better while Glaber Torres was out with Bronx native Andrew Velasquez at shortstop. Torres has struggled since his return and was benched during the Blue Jays series this week. The Mets, meanwhile, now possess an elite middle infield with Lindor and his good buddy, Javi Baez, up the middle. In Villar's emergence as the everyday third baseman is an improvement upon the shaky J.D. Davis at the hot corner. So i got to give the edge to the Mets in that regard. Now, how about as far as outfield the defense? Uh, like the addition of Rizzo getting Gallo improved uh, the Yankee defense. Judge is a strong outfielder and likely be in center field for the series, flanked by the West Mobile Stanton and Wright. All three have strong arms. The Mets have moved McNeil to left field since Lador returned from his oblique injury, and he's held his own there. Porter has lost the step to the age of 32, but he's still a quality outfielder and has been playing every day in center field since Nemo took the part. But I'd have to give the edge to the Yankees in that one. Now, 
How about the bench? Smith and Davis become backups for Mets due to underperformance, which is not, which does give manager Willie Ross quality pinch hitting options. Without the designated hitter, Luke Voigt will be the Yankees' key back coming off the bench. Torres, if his defense keeps in sideline, could be another quality option. And the speedy reserve, Tyler Wade, could be a factor stealing the base. So we'll call that one even. Now how about on the mound? The rotation. No DeGrom or Stromer for the Mets this series. No Cole, Tayon for the Yankees. Injuries and timing will deprive fans of some of the best arms these teams possess. So the home team will send out regressing all-star Taiwan Walker. He needs to turn it around tonight, doesn't he? Rookie Tyron McGill is kind of cooled off. He'll be going Saturday. And uh, let's face it, Carlos Carrasco going Sunday has been a little bit disappointing. Now the Yankees will counter with Jordan Montgomery, Corey Kluber, and a pitcher to be determined. So that alone tells me this series we could see a lot of offense, even from these challenge lineups. So maybe that can kickstart both offenses. So we'll call the rotation even. Now the bullpen, the closer for both teams really doesn't inspire much confidence these days. Mets right-hander Edwin Diaz has blown six saves this year, including two in a row against the Nationals last weekend. While the Yankees' flame forward or all this Chapman season has been a roller coaster, having allowed runs in consecutive outings and notching a career-worst 1.44 whip. Aaron Boone's team will be without its top reliever, Jonathan Loiska, a major blow to its bullpen. Now, the Mets' high-leverage setup man, Seth Lugo, Aaron Loop, and Trevor May have been more trustworthy than Diaz, particularly Loop and his 1.09 ERA. So, <coughs> going forward, maybe next year, we just have a bullpen closer by committee. But nonetheless, we give the edge to the Mets as far as the bullpen's concerned. Now, how about the manager? A sizable chunk of both fan bases would like to see managers in their respective dugouts next year. Despite my rate issues, Boone has does have the Yankees on a 91 pace. And with a light schedule ahead, the, players, the playoffs still still seem realistic. Rojas received credit for keeping the Mets afloat during the middle of the season as they were hit by a number of injuries. But as the team has floundered, his decisions come under question on almost a nightly basis, particularly his habit of managing for the following game rather than the one being played. So we're going to have to give the edge to the Yankees there. Now, how about the infamous intangibles? Both teams are desperate. Both teams should feel like their respective seasons are slipping away. Both teams need to pull out all the stops each night. The Mets will be at home, which could prove the slight edge, and they have a lot of ground to make up, providing extra urgency. So I would think just from a gut check standpoint, you have to give the edge to the Mets. Now, how about Trevor May? He's just glad the second installment will be played in Queens and not the Bronx. The Mets reliever noting the additions of Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo to the Yankees since the last time the rivals met on 4th of July weekend is counting on City Field to perhaps help neutralize that improved lineup. Now, the Yankees have never been shy about getting every single power bat in a lineup on their team at the same time. It's nothing normal. It's guys you have got to be a little bit more careful with and not let them beat you, and I can see where May is coming from. The good thing for May is the Mets are playing in their graveyard of ballparks, so that's helpful. <clears throat> and you won't see any 314-foot homers in City Field. That's not to take away anything from the Yankees. They're taking advantage of their environment, but that could be a good neutralizing factor in this series. <clears throat> I mean, how many Yankees <clears throat> have taken advantage of that short right field porch from Lemayhew and Judge?
Ah. But you know what? A good team takes advantage of that ballpark, and that's how the Yankees roll. And we got to give them credit for that, man. Nothing wrong with that. But it is amazing how the bang-up Yankees have lost six straight and 10 and 12 since their 13-game winning streak that resurrected their season. Recent pitching staff casualties have included Garrett Gould, Zach Britton, and Jamison Tyone. Meanwhile, the Mets are still without their ace, Jacob DeGrom, and last weekend placed Brandon Nimmo on the injured list with a straight right ha strained right hamstring. And those are two guys that are so key to the Mets. Now, if you go into the game, Saturday's pregame ceremonies, which will include Mike Piazza, Bobby Valentine, Joe Torre with the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and aftermath remembered. Piazza hit maybe the most famous home run in Med history to help beat the Braves on September 21st, 2001. The first sporting event in New York following the attacks. And I'm sure it's an honor for everyone to play in that game. Uh, Mets playing the Yankees. It'll be an emotional game. And uh, we remember something that unfortunately we have to remember. So it's not a cause for celebration. But I think it's a good time to remember and be thankful for everything that happened. And uh, let us never forget. But the main focus has got to be the Yankees. The stakes are always high with the Yankees. And both teams are trying to solidify spots. We're chasing some teams that are ahead of us in the standings with the, like the Braves and Phillies or Yankees who have the Red Sox and Rays, although I think they'll never catch the Rays now. But the anniversary of 9-11 really makes this an emotional roller coaster. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. Uh I don't want to say it's a fun series to watch because of 9-11. But it is must-watch TV. And speaking of the Yankees' meltdown, does this kind of feel like the 2007 Mets or the 2004 Yankees when they blew a 3-0 American League Championship Series lead to the Red Sox? Some may say it is. But for Mets fans, let's look at the 2000 Mets. The Yankees, at their peak on August 27th, after notching their 13th straight victory, held an American League playoff spot by a six-and-a-half game margin over the A's. After going 2-9 and nine in their next 11 contests, they bought a one-and-a-half game edge over the Blue Jays into Thursday night's till, and the Blue Jays beat them, so it's down to half. Now, the 07 Mets reached their peak on September 12th, paced, by, paced the Phillies by seven games at that point. It's out to the NL East. But unfortunately, they completed their schedule with a 5-12 swan dive to finish one game behind the Phillies in their division as well as the Rockies and Padres in the NL wildcard race. So if you're scoring at home, the Yankees would have to play better from their 2-9 stretch, a 182 percentage, to climb to 5-12, 294 in their first 17 games since the end of their winning streak. <clears throat> so how concerned are the Yankees and their fans? Should they be? That they're emulating the ancestors of the club with whom they'll open a weekend series Friday at City Field? Let's point out some of the similarities. The collapse of the pitching. Yankees placed starter Jamison Tyone on the injured list Thursday with a partial tear of a tendon in his right ankle. Another big blow to a pitching staff that already saw Garrett Cole depart early Thursday, Tuesday with a, a left hamstring problem. Furthermore, top reliever Jonathan Loisaga Rest submit a shutdown after straining his right shoulder. Now those Mets from 2007 absolutely fired their arms by season's end. Their ERE increasing each month until the 5.14 high, or should we say low point in September. 
Orlando El Duque Hernandez, injury prone, could only handle short relief assignments by the end. While guys like Mel Mike Pelfrey, John Main, Oliver Perez, and Game 162 game starter Tom Glavin had little left to give. Now, what's the distinguishing difference? That would be Mr. Cole played catch on Thursday and could return to the starting rotation early next week. If he can return and earn his ace's salary, he would prove the stopper that this elite 07 Mets equivalent Pedro Martinez could not do at age 35, be that stopper. Now, there is a striking similarity because there was a dogged pursuer. The Phillies went on a 13-4 tear to jump over the Mets in 07. The Blue Jays entered Thursday on a 13-5 run. The big difference? The Phillies benefited from an easy late September schedule in which they faced no playoff team, while the Jays must play AL East leading Rays six more times and the Yankees still a playoff club for now three times in the final week. Now the striking similarity? Both teams had great offensive players. The Mets enjoyed uh, employed Beltran, Delgado, Rays, and Wright, and the Yankees have Judge and uh, Stan. The big difference? Actually, Beltran, Delgado, and Wright all hit the ball great that September. They just couldn't outrun the avalanche that fulfilled their pitching staff. The Judge and Stanton, who had slowed down after carrying the team during its winning streak, honor their Big Apple predecessors. If they can't, they might join them in infamy. All right, since we've been mentioning Jacob DeGrom a lot, uh, he's trying to quell the fears about his perfectly fine elbow. Uh, DeGrom threw early Thursday afternoon, uh, and he shagged flies during batting practice. And after leaving the field at Lone Depot Park, the Mets ace spoke to reporters for 19 seconds without taking questions. The comments were DeGrom's first since team president Sandy Alderson two days earlier said the two-time Cy Young Award winner had healed from a sprain or low-grade tear of the ulnar collateral ligament. Uh, DeGrom basically said he knew what was said and my ligament is perfectly fine. I've been throwing and I wouldn't be if I had a compromised ligament. That's the plan to continue to throw and build up and see where we end up. That message delivered DeGrom disappeared into after that message DeGrom just disappeared. He really didn't feel like talking about it, I guess. And he's indicated uh that he's ready. But Alderson is again the plans to build up DeGrom to about seventy five percent and attempt to discover he can pitch without discomfort. It's hard to believe, but DeGrom hasn't pitched since July seventh. Now before Noah Syndergaard tested positive for COVID nineteen, the Mets were targeting this weekend subway series for the right hander's return. Syndergaard who Exited quarantine this week will have to sell for throwing from the mound for the first time since resuming activity. Syndergaard has been playing catch at City Field in recent days. Now, Tom Snino is expected to begin a rehab assignment for AAA Syracuse this weekend. The catcher has missed most of the, most of the last month with two separate injured list stints with a sprained left, left thumb. Uh, they're saying it's better and he's not feeling it as much when he makes contacts, and he'll play for Syracuse a few games and hopefully return to the Mets. Now, J.D. Davis started at third base because Rojas likes the swings he took the first time he faced Mets. Uh, Marlins left-hander Jesus Lizardo. The insertion of Davis into the lineup also provided a chance, chance to get Jonathan Vlar a rest. Now, Vlar has really played a lot of games, and uh, I guess they wanted to put Davis in there not only to give him time, but give Vlar some rest. Who expected Vlar to get all this time? Oy. As we've been saying right along, this is going to be an emotional weekend. And uh, it's going to be crazy. Uh, 
I was actually working in New York that day on 9-11. I was on my way to the city. Uh, pulled into Newark uh, Penn Station on my way to Penn Station, New York. And there is where you transfer the path train. They said all service was suspended due to a fire. I didn't even know what was going on at the time. But after we left the station, you could see one of the trade centers was actually flaming like it was a lit cigarette about one quarter of the way down. I said, oh, my God, a fire at the World Trade Center. And people, a lot of people got off the train. And this was before, like, cell phones and text messages. I guess you just had beepers back then. I can't even recall. But I was reading the paper, so I was kind of oblivious until all the people started looking outside the window for this. And when I did that, I said, oh, my God. So I went into the city, and then when you came out of Penn Station, if you look to your right, down 7th Avenue, you could always see the two World Trade Centers. And the first one was almost burnt to a crisp. So I walked up. my. I worked for the New York Times at the time. We're on 43rd and Broadway. And in Broadway, they have the ABC Studios with the big screen where they have the ticker. And they always show what they're showing. And they were showing the Pentagon. And then a report was that a second tower was hit. And I come into work into the lobby and the security guard, we all knew the security guard says the first one just went down and it was crazy. I mean, you couldn't even make phone calls from our work lines because all the phones were jammed up. So I had no way of getting in touch with even my relatives and everything until later that afternoon when my sister called me from Florida to see how I was doing. Uh, basically, I was stranded in the city, couldn't get home if I wanted to. Luckily, I was able to get one of the trains coming home uh, around 4.30 or so that day. And then they shut service down again. So luckily, I was able to get out. And that should have been the least of my worries because I did have my life at that point and so many people. I actually, the, one of the guys I worked with who was one of my mentors there, he lost one of his sons as a firefighter. Uh, and he would not give, the family would not give up hope. He was one of the last... Uh, People that the family actually said, okay, we admit he's no longer here uh, after like a year later. So it was a tough day. It was a tough day. And uh, let's not forget any of this when we actually watch the game tomorrow. And the, the significance of this is Shea was even designated a staging area for rescue workers. And the Mets were all in on this. Uh, not only was it our city and country, uh, but the Mets made sure they were an integral part of the rescue effort. Uh, everyone from the Mets, to this day, I, I laud them for what they did. Uh, the Mets players were down at ground zero all the time. Uh, Johnny Franco, Mike Piazza, Todd Zeal, Al Leiter. Uh, hats off to them. And that's one of the things I always remember them. They'll always be a special place in my hearts, place in my hearts for them. Now the Mets returned to Pittsburgh to restart the schedule after six days off, but I can't even tell you how they did. It was just a bore to me. But the game I always remember is that September twenty-first game. Uh, how can you not? And it's replayed all the time. It's one of the most replayed games in baseball history, I think. And the way the Braves and Mets, two rivals who basically hated each other on the field, embraced and hugged, and meant so much to everybody there. And uh, it just goes to show that if we put the sport aside, we love the sport more than anything.
But I think more than anything, we love our country, and that was so great to see. And that 9-11, the 9 game, I always call it the 9-11 game, uh, was probably one of the most spectacular events in baseball history. Not because of the significance of what happened in baseball, it's just the way we rebounded. And, I mean, if you're a Met fan, you're glad Piazza hit the home run. But it was just so great to pay tribute. Unfortunately, we had to pay tribute to everyone who was fallen by what happened at the uh, trade centers. And today it'll always win and will we'll win a heart place in my heart for me. And unfortunately, it has to be that way. That will always remember it. But the one thing I will never do is never forget. Okay, it's time to celebrate some Met birthdays. Who's already? We got four to celebrate today. First one is Andrew Brown. Who remembers Andrew Brown? Raise your hands if you do. Andrew Brown wore number 47 and 30 for the Mets, and he played for us in 2013 and 14. All told, he played 87 games, 194 at-bats, and a 216 batting average. Happy birthday, Andrew Brown. Guess how old Andrew is today? 37. Happy birthday to Neil Walker. Neil was the man we called upon to replace Daniel Murphy. He was traded by the Pirates to the Mets in exchange for John Neese on December 9, 2015. After two years with the Mets, we traded him in exchange for Eric Hanhold on August 12, 2017. All told, Neil played 186 games and batted 275 with the Mets. His big year was 16 when he hit 23 homers, 55 RBIs, and batted 282 with a .476 slugging percentage. Happy birthday, Neil Walker. Happy birthday, too. Anthony Swarzak, 2018, he was with us for 29 games, he pitched 26 innings pitched, uh, 4 saves, had an ERA of 6.15. Now he was traded by the Mets to Seattle for Jay Bruce, with Jay Bruce and Gerson Bautista and Justin Dunn and Jared Kalanick for Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz. Will we regret that trade in the long run? We shall see. Happy birthday to Philip Evans. Played with us in 2017, 2018. Pinch hitter extreme. Uh, played a little bit in third and second base. All told, batted 241, 34 games, 54 at bats. Happy birthday, Phil Evans. Now, here are some Met transactions. On this date in 1982, the Mets traded Tom Hausman to the Atlanta Braves for Carlos Diaz. And on this date in 1990, the Mets traded Steve Rose and Nicky Davis to the Houston Astros for Dan Schatziner. Okay, who wants to go back to a magical day in Met history? Put on your time travel hats. We're going back to September 10th, 1969. Now, this is one of the most historic days in Met history, as for it was on this night that the Mets took over first place for the first time, and maybe they never looked back. On August 19th, the Cubs had a Mets by nine and a half games, but they soon lost 14 to 21 games, including a glorious three-game sweep by the Mets at Chase Stadium. The Mets, on the other hand, had won 23 to 29 games after this twin bill sweep, making it seven straight wins. Now tonight, Gil Hodges' Mets 83 and 57 hosted Gene Walk's last place expansion. Montreal exposed 4498 in front of 23,512 fans at Chase Stadium. In the first game, Jim uh, Gil Hodges sent Jim McAndrew to the mound against Michael Wegner. 
Now, here's the lineup for the Expos that day. Ty Klein leading off center field. Gary Sutherland batting second. Second base, Rusty Staub right field batting third. Ron Fairley first base batting fourth. Mac Jones left field batting fifth. Cocoa Boy third base batting sixth. Ron Brand seventh batting, batting seventh catching. Bobby Wine batting eighth playing short. And Mike Wegner pitching batting ninth. Now, for the Mets, we had Tommy Agee leading off playing center field, Wayne Garrett playing third, batting second, Cleon Jones left field batting third, Art Shamsky right field batting fourth, Ken Boswell batting fifth at second base, Don Quindette in sixth playing first base, Jerry Grody seventh catching, Buddy Harrelson eighth batting, batting eighth playing short, and Jim McAndrew pitching. Now, the Expos scored on a Mets error in the first inning, but the Mets came right back as Tommy Agee led off with a walk, reached second on a pass ball, and got to third on a ground out. Archamsky singled and drove Agee in to tie the game at one. Now, on the top of the second inning, the Expos' Mac Jones tripled and scored on Don Clendenin's throwing error, making it 2-1 Expos. In the fifth, Tommy Agee reached on an error by third baseman Coco de la Boy. Wayne Garrett singled and Cleon Jones then walked to load the bases. Then, in 1969, amazing fashion, Expo pitcher Mike Wegner blocked bringing in A.G. with the tying run, and the crowd went bonkers. The game remained tied as the starters gave way to relievers Bill Stoneman from Montreal and Ron Taylor for New York. In the bottom of the 12th, Cleon Jones single with two men out. Jones was batting 347 on the year. Rod Gaspar then walked, putting Jones in scoring position. Ken Boswell singled up the middle, scoring Cleon Jones with the walk-off winning run. The crowd chanted, we're number one as the big scoreboard flashed the same words. Now, this nightcap, here was the lineups. Ty Klein batting first, center field. Remy Hiroso playing second, batting second. Ron Fairley, first base, batting third. Rusty Staub, right field, batting fourth. Mac Jones, left field, batting fifth. Coco LeBoy playing third, batting sixth. John Bateman catching, batting seventh. Bobby Wine, the shortstop, batting eighth. And Howie Reed pitching, batting ninth. For the Metropolitans, Tommy Agee leading off playing center field. Wayne Garrett playing third, batting second. Cleon Jones playing left, batting third. Archamsky right field, batting fourth. Ken Boswell batting fifth, second base. Don Clendenin playing first, batting sixth. Jerry Grody catching, batting seventh. Bud Harrelson shortstop, batting eighth. And Nolan Ryan pitching, batting ninth. Now in the nightcap, our good buddy Nolan Ryan pitched a three-hit one run complete game, striking out 11 Expos along the way. While walking four, the win got Ryan to a 6-1 record on the season with a 2.95 ERA and 79 strikeouts and 76 innings up to that point. Now, in the bottom of third inning, the Mets sent 11 men to the play as they scored six runs with six hits. Jerry Grody led off with a double, Bud Harrelson singled, but Grody was added home on a fielder's choice, hit by Nolan Ryan. Tommy Agee was hit by a pitch, and a wild pitch to Wayne Garrett scored Harrelson. Garrett then singled, scoring Nolan Ryan. Cleon Jones then singled home two more runs, keeping himself on pace for that year's batting title. Ken Boswell also singled, bringing in a run, and the inning was capped off as Art Shamsky, who also singled, scored the sixth run. A wild pitch in the seventh inning scored Ken Boswell with the final run as the Mets went on a 7-1 double hit win round to win 7-1 as a doubleheader sweep was in their reach and they took advantage of it and they took a one-game lead in the National Leagues. It was their sixth straight win.
amazing, amazing, amazing. After the game, Tom Seaver popped a few corks of bubbly and poured it into paper cups. He said, some of the guys visited a winery and brought back three bottles of champagne and sparkling burgundy. The team toasted Nolan Ryan and Kenny Boswell. And Boswell was quoted saying, I felt if I didn't do it, somebody else would have, but I'm glad it was me. And that's one date that lives on in Met history forever. What else happened on this day in Met history? Well, on this date in 1993, the Mets 1963, I should say, the Mets 4-2 victory of Giants, the Polo Grounds. Carlton Willie retired the side in order, getting all three Alou brothers, Jesus, Maddie, and Felipe, to make an out. The Dominican trio becomes, becomes the first three siblings to bat consecutively in the same inning. How about that, as Mel Allen would say. And on this date in 1985, the captain, Keith Hernandez, receives a two-minute standing ovation from the Mets fans in the first game back at Shea after testifying in a Pittsburgh courtroom. The Mets' first baseman, who responds with a run-producing single against his former team, admitted on the witness stand to having using cocaine while playing for the Cardinals. So those are some of the other things that have happened on this date. But you know what? Now it's time to talk about what's going on in the group. Now, when I say the group, I mean New York Mets baseball, way of life. If you're not a member and you belong to Facebook, please do join. Lots of great stuff there talked about every day. And if you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. It'll be uploaded on the carrier of your choice every day. And you'll have access all to all our archives, which is always a treat to listen to and just have some fun kick back. And if you ever need to reach me, I'm at philstan41 at gmail.com. Would always love to hear from you. Now, what's going on in the group? Well, John Heyman reported that Theo Epstein uh, is one of the names in the Mets are interested in as far as a GM. And uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, last year we heard about David Stearns, David Frost, Mark Chernoff, Josh Burns, and John Daniels. And you never know who's going to surface. Now we mentioned it's Mike Hampton's birthday. He let the Mets starting staff and starts in 33, complete games 3, innings pitched 217.2, and ERA of 3.14 in 2020. Now how about Aaron Luke? Aaron Loop has appeared in 58 games a season and posted a 1.9 ERA. In Major League history, only four lefties appeared in 60-plus games and posted an ERA under 1.10. You go, Aaron. Now, who, uh, since 2010, the most starts of no more than 200 runs by a Met pitcher in a season since 2010 is DeGrom with 26 in 2018. Strowman's already reached 22 in 2021. Way to go. How about the future of the Mets? Our good buddy Ronnie Mauricio, the Mets' talented shortstop, has been promoted from AA Binghamton. Promoted to AA Binghamton from Brooklyn. He is going to be an up-and-comer and with us before you know it. Now, the Mets, unfortunately, here's a sad stat about the Marlins series. They were 1-for-22 runners in scoring position against the Marlins this past series. And even more depressing is the Mets record at Lone Depot Park this year is 3-7. and seven. It has been a house of horrors. And I noted that since 2019, Pete Alonso leads the National League with 10 multi-home run games and trails only Nelson Cruz 13 for the MLB League. Now, who are the most recent Mets to steal two bases in the game? Well, our good buddy, Javi Baez, just stole two bases in the game the other day. 
by the guys who have done it since 2018. Francisco Rendor, Tian Broxton, Amado Rosario twice, Brandon Nemo, Joanna Cespedes, and Juan Lagares. Anyone see Steve Cohen's tweet? He says, I know how much all of you care about this team. It doesn't go unnoticed. And Jacob Crom gave a speedman after the elbow sprain, revealing, I know what was said, but my ligament is perfectly fine. And then I asked the question of the day. I said, who do you think is the gutsiest player in Met history? Jason Lynch had a picture of all the Met greats, and he said, everyone pictured plus Al Leiter and minus Gooden and Strawberry. Harvey Porter said, Rod Caneo, he got to this way to majors with no talent. Of course, Ron Hunt throwing himself in front of pitches. Richard Rose said, Ted McGraw. So those are some of the great things, great, great things we're always talking about in the group. So if you're not a member, please join. We would love, love to have you. Now it's time for Mets Trivia and Jeopardy. Who is ready? Now, yesterday's Met Trivia question was provided by our good friend, Harvey Porras. The question is, which Met pitcher lost the most games in the season without a win? Today's Met's Jeopardy is... Two clues agreed to a one-year, $3.5 million contract with the New York Mets. Face Houston Astros second baseman Jose Atuve, and the 18-inch height difference is believed to be the biggest pitcher-batter difference, with the exception of a 1951 publicity stunt which featured three foot seven, Eddie Guidel. Lock in your answers. I'll give you a few more seconds. Let's listen to some Jeopardy music. Okay, contestants, by now your answers have to be locked in. So here's the answer. The trivia question, which Met pitcher lost the most games in a season without a win? By by golly, it was our good friend Johnny Franco, who was 0-8 in 1998 with 38 saves. Congrats to Met expert extraordinaire Jason Lynch on being the first to get it. Yesterday's Jeopardy was agreed to a one-year, $3.5 million contract with the Mets. Face the Houston Astros second baseman Jose Altuve. The 18-inch height difference is believed to be the biggest between pitcher and batter with the exception of a 1951 publicity stunt which featured a three foot seven inch Eddie Guy The correct response to that one is two is John Rush. And guess who got it right? Yes, Jason Lynch. Way to go, Jason. As always, he is the man. And so are you, all you guys for playing every day. Don't be afraid to answer, jump in. It's fun. We got one up every day. Ah, uh, what do we hear in the background, folks? Yes, it's the Kindness Corner theme song. So I want to thank you all for listening again, making this podcast so much fun to do. And thanks for all your great comments and really appreciate it. And join the group if you haven't. It compliments this podcast so well and subscribe to the podcast if you can. Well, the big series with the Yankees starts tonight. Jordan Montgomery, 5-5 five five with a 3.47 ERA for the Yankees. Tyler McGill, 2-4 with a 4.20 ERA for the Metropolitans. Should be fun. It's always fun when the Mets play the Yankees, and both teams have a lot to play for. So that's it for today. Check back in tomorrow. We'll have an update from the first of the three Subway games. Uh, If you're going to the game, have fun. If not, it's on SNY tonight at 710. Enjoy, folks, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.